The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. And a special welcome to those who may be joining us on live stream for the first time today. I'm John Burens, the past senior minister of this congregation, stepping in this morning for my esteemed successor and my own pastor, Reverend Vanessa Rush Southern, who's away on a well-deserved break with her family. On her behalf and that of the congregation as a whole, I want to welcome everyone wherever you may be on this first Sunday of the new year. Due to the surge in the Omicron variant and two cases, sadly, in our own worship staff, Vanessa prudently decided to pull worship back into live stream mode only for the next several weeks. So we invite everyone out there to keep safe while thanking everyone among our staff and volunteers who have helped make this live stream service possible. That includes our communications manager, Jonathan Silk, and Eric Shackelford, and Shuli Ong mining the uh, cameras. It includes uh, Joe Chapeau, who is our live chat moderator, uh, available to you should you have any difficulties. You simply uh, use the chat function. We thank Remigio Flood, who our sexton who opened the building for us this morning, and Carrie Steer Salazar, who arranged the gorgeous flowers. And if you stay for our Zoom coffee hour, that will be hosted by either Tom Brookshire, Les James, Alex Starr, or Don Madison, who does the sermon discussion. Just let the host know if you'd like to join that process. Our musicians this morning include Elliot Etzkorn, a pianist from the Oakland area who offers that community a free piano studio that, to build community. And if you want to learn more about that, uh, he's available to talk with you, uh, certainly. And uh, we're especially grateful to Ben Rudiak Gould, who will be our song leader this morning. Our special pulpit guest is my good friend, the Reverend Dr. David Usher. Uh, there are some amusing uh, remarks about him on the website, uh, representing that great sense of humor that Vanessa Southern has. But the truth is that uh, although David did have the interesting experience of working as a young man as a jackaroo in his native Australia before studying for the ministry at Oxford, he then came to serve some congregations here in the United States where he brought with him I think a growing awareness of the worldwide diaspora of liberal religionists, some in countries that um, are not friendly to our values of human rights and others that, uh, that are, everywhere from Eastern Europe to South Africa and Australia, New Zealand. He helped me when I was president of our denomination here in the United States to realize how important it was that we connect with people through an international council of Unitarians and Universalists, so I've always been in David's debt. And I welcome you here this morning, David, look forward to your sermon. I'm now going to ask you to step to the pulpit and help us by lighting a candle, which we have now for almost two years lit, the blue candle, to bring into this space the spiritual, if not physical, presence of those out there who cannot be with us in body, but are always with us in our hearts whenever we worship. And I now want to ask Elliot and Ben to lead us as we open our worship with one of my favorite hymns, appropriate only to this time of year, number 350, 
the great New Year's hymn, The Ceaseless Flow of Endless Time. Speaking of the days ahead, I want to invite all of you who are now hearing my words to join our inclusive community in opportunities for spiritual deepening, prophetic witness, deeper understanding of the liberal approach to faith. There's a men's group that meets on Saturday mornings once a month. There's a growing community of young adults called 20s and 30s. There is a women's group doing prophetic witness on behalf of reproductive choice, not to mention a program of small group ministry, embracing members and newcomers of all spiritual orientations and welcoming dialogue across differences and committed to racial and ethnic diversity. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you have downloaded the order of service so that you can follow along more easily. There are forms there called Connection that will allow you to receive our emails and our newsletters. I also invite you again to stay for the Zoom coffee hour to meet other members and friends and ask questions or comment on what you've heard. This uh, uh, coming week, there are a number of uh, events taking place, uh, including <clears throat> um, the beginning of a new series next uh, Sunday at 9.45 by uh, Mills College philosophy professor Jay Gupta, who is a member of the congregation, on the wonderful theme, what does it all mean, and other timeless questions. There are me morning meditation practices on Tuesdays and Thursdays and an equanimity practice on Friday morning. Um, there'll be a two session series for newcomers and visitors uh, at the end of the, uh, on Wednesday, January 19th, and then on February the 2nd, led by Allison Jacks, our associate minister, and Vanessa Southern. As is often the case here, our offering this morning goes to a good cause beyond our walls. 
During the month of January, our UUSF Women's Group and our Human Rights Working Group have chosen to try to raise at least $2,500 for an urgent cause, the defense of women's right to reproductive choice. The funds will go to SACRED, an initiative of the First Unitarian Church of Dallas, Texas, where I myself once served and where the women of that congregation actually years ago funded the litigation behind Roe v. Wade. So I ask you all to give as generously as you can to a cause that is not about beliefs, just about the effects of anti-choice dogma on the lives of real women and their families. If you were hoping to read and discuss my forthcoming book on the history of this congregation, a religious center with a civic circumference, Unitarians in San Francisco since 1850, I must ask you to be a bit patient. Supply chain problems seem to have affected even the publishing industry. Uh, but lest anyone think we lack gratitude for the gift of life that we now enjoy or recognition of the difficult decisions that have to be made by those before us, I invite you to also join more deeply into the spirit of our worship today with our meditation on breathing, thinking also of those with whom our lives are joined now and those who will follow. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. If you have the order of worship before you, I now ask you to join me in reciting the covenant, which is the bond of union in this congregation. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. Dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. From all that dwell below the skies, let songs of hope and faith are 
arise. Let peace, goodwill on earth be sung through every land by every tongue. For over two years now, since well before the pandemic, we have included in our worship a ritual of remembrance and commitment. To remember the many forgotten who have suffered or died due to policies of our government, starting with seven children separated from their families who died that first year in U.S. detention camps. As the pandemic has increased our awareness of suffering in that regard, we have often counted the thousands who have died each week due to COVID, praying for vaccinations and immunizations, and for those who are on the front lines of fighting the pandemic, and for an end to the poor distribution of life-saving resources, not to mention the many heroes in the front lines of the struggle. This week, as we begin a new year, I think it fitting that we strike our chime 12 times for the months ahead with a prayer for less suffering and more justice in each. And may we each resolve also in the days, weeks, and months that lie before us to do all that we can in the time that is ours with all that is within us to build greater human connection and community and to lessen the tides of human suffering. So may it be.
Join me now in the spirit of meditation and prayer. Spirit of life and love, God of many names and mystery beyond all our naming, we ask for strength in this new year, but also joy. In the midst of hardship, teach us that joy is forever possible. Awakening with gratitude to each new day, finding in the eyes and hearts and voices of others human connection, an openness, a need for compassion. Let us bring our full presence to each moment. There is so much within us that we do not bring forth. Help us then in this new year to be more fully alive, more fully present, more caring. For heaven knows the needs of this world need the fullness of all its people, need the full presence of our souls. So may it be. And now, let us join in a moment of quiet reflection and silence. as it is in the meditations of our hearts, when we are most at one with ourselves, our best selves, with one another, and with the source and resource of our being. So let it be also in our daily words and deeds. Amen.
Our reading is taken from the words of our colleague, the Reverend Kathleen McTeague. In the struggles we choose for ourselves, in the ways we move forward in our lives and bring our world forward with us. It is right to remember the names of those who gave us strength in this choice of living. It is right to name the power of hard lives well lived. We share a history with those lives. We belong to the same motion. They too were strengthened by what had gone before. They too were drawn on by the vision of what might yet come to be. Those who lived before us, who struggled for justice and suffered injustice before us, have not melted into the dust and have not disappeared. They are with us still. The lives they lived hold us steady. Their words remind us and call us back to ourselves. Their courage and love evoke our own. We, the living, carry them with us. We are their voices, their hands, and their hearts. We take them with us, and with them, choose the deeper path of living. As I mentioned, the offering this morning will go to Sacred Dignity, an interfaith, intersectional organization organizing faith communities to reclaim reproductive dignity and autonomy. Our offering will help to support their first ever virtual conference. To make a donation, you can use the donate button on our website. Uh, if you do so, please select spe the special offering choice to make your gift. And if you're sending a check, please mark in the memo special offering for the 2nd of January. Your generosity will be gratefully received.
Apal Davies was the extraordinarily successful and influential minister of All Souls Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C. during the mid-20th century. And he wrote about what going to church meant to him. Let me tell you why I come to church. I come to church and would, whether I was a preacher or not, because I fall below my own standards and need to be constantly brought back to them. It's not enough that I should think about the world and its problems at the level of a newspaper report or a magazine discussion. I, I could too soon become too low a level. I must have my conscience sharpened until it goads me to the most thorough and responsible thinking of which I am capable. I must feel again the love I owe to my fellow men and women. I must not only hear about it, but feel it. And in church, I do. I need to be reminded that there are things I must do in the world, unselfish things, things undertaken at the level of idealism. Workaday enthusiasms are not enough. They wear out too soon. I want to experience human nature at its best and be reminded of its highest possibilities. And this happens to me in church. It may seem as though the same things could be found in solitude, but it does not easily happen so. In a congregation, we share each other's spiritual needs and reinforce each other. In some ways, the soul is never lonelier than in a church service. That is certainly true of a pulpit, for a pulpit is the most intimately lonely place in the world, yet it is a loneliness that has a strength in it. Perhaps this is because the innermost solitude of the human heart is in some paradoxical way a thing that can be shared, that must be shared if the Spirit of God is to find a full entrance into it. We meet each other as friends and neighbors anywhere and everywhere, but we seldom do so in the consciousness of our soul's deepest yearnings. But in church we do, in a way that protects us from all that is intrusive, yet leaves us knowing that we all have the same yearning, the same spiritual loneliness, the same need of assurance and faith and hope. We are brought together at the highest level possible. We are not merely an audience. We are a congregation. I doubt whether I could stand the thought of the cruelty and misery of the present world unless I could know through an experience that renewed itself over and over again that at the heart of life there is assurance, that I can hold an ultimate belief that all is well. And this happens in church. Life must have its sacred moments, and its holy places. 
the soul will always seek its nurture. For religious experience, which is life at its most intense, life at its best, is something we cannot do without.
while ago, I was at a dinner party, and I found myself sitting next to a woman I had not met before. So we went through the usual getting to know you pleasantries. What's your name? Where do you live? Why do you talk funny? What do you do? Now, let me tell you, I've been a Unitarian Universalist minister and student before that for 45 years. And I've liked being a minister, I really have. But in social situations like that, I have always rather dreaded being asked that question. That was particularly, particularly the case in the United Kingdom where going to church, let alone being a minister, was generally regarded as a sign of mental deficiency. I dreaded the question because invariably I would get one of three reactions. The first was that I could see the instant look of fear in the other person's eyes. The quick checking, checking for the nearest exit as they apparently think that I'm about to get all evangelical on them. And then for the rest of the evening, they apologize if they happen to say anything even remotely irreverent or, goodness me, a swear word, because as a parson, I obviously am a person of very delicate sensibilities. The second response is that they spend the rest of the evening interrogating me as if there is no other subject in which I could possibly be interested or able to converse. But the third response, the third response is by far the worst. That is when they spend the rest of the evening telling me all the reasons why they do not go to church. Now let me assure you, whether or not someone goes to church or which church they choose to go to is entirely a matter for them. I really don't care, but they seem to feel the need to justify why they don't go to church, usually with all of the most specious rational, rationalizations you could think of, all of which I've heard many, many times before. This woman fell very definitely into that third category. She proceeded to tell me at great length about her disdain for church, her reasons for not going. Churches are full of hypocrites, she said. It's not true, by the way. Churches are not full of hypocrites. There's room for plenty more. Religion is bunk, she said nothing but superstition and nonsense and think of the wars started because of it, blah, 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 blah. Well, I tried to keep my head down. I tried to pretend I was intensely interested in my Brussels sprouts. I was a guest after all. My mother did bring me up right. I, knew, I know it's not good manners to start an argument at somebody else's dinner party. But then this woman said, and anyway, going to church doesn't make you a better person. Well, that's when I kind of snapped. I turned on her. That is exactly where you are wrong, I said. Going to church does make me a better person. And that's the whole point. I go to church in order to be a better person. Not 
a better person than you, not a better person than anyone else, but a better person than I think I would be if I did not go to church. And how could it be otherwise? Because going to church reminds me of values the world would so easily otherwise make me forget. Going to church puts me in the company of the wisdom of humanity's great spiritual teachers and exemplars and holds me accountable to, the, to their examples. Going to church means I learn the stories of everyday folk, everyday folk leading everyday imperfect lives like mine who have somehow overcome great adversity in their lives with serenity, equanimity, through the steadfastness of their faith. Going to church means I hear poetry and music which touch my soul, which comfort and inspire my sometimes tremulous and fainting heart. Going to church does not make me a better person than anyone else. It makes me a better person than I would otherwise be. It makes me a person who is trying, at least, to pay attention to the business of being faithful in life, faithful to life, holding myself accountable to that which is so much greater than myself. I go to church because I want to be a person of faith. Ah, faith. But what is faith? I did once come across a definition of faith that I had not previously encountered. But before I tell you that definition, let me ask you a question. How would you define faith? If you worked at the Oxford English Dictionary and were responsible for words beginning with the letter F, what would you say about faith? And I was once at a dinner party, and yes, my life does consist of nothing but dinner parties, where another guest did work for the Oxford English Dictionary, and he was an expert in words beginning with the letter P. Anyway, how would you define faith as an objective phenomenon in human life? And perhaps more interestingly, how would you describe faith as a subjective phenomenon in your life? What is the basis, the reality, the significance of faith for you? Well, the definition that I encountered was that faith is believing things you know are not true. Faith is believing things you know are not true. It is a rather cynical definition, it has to be said. But then Mark Twain was not known for being entirely without criticism of the many foibles of re organized religion. Twain's rationale was that if you know something is true, then believing it does not require faith. Therefore, for faith, is believing what you know is not true. One of the subjects that I had to study for my theology degree was, I quote, the development of Christian doctrine up to the year 461 Anno Domini. I know, pretty exciting stuff, right? 
Those first few hundred years were very important in the life of the emerging Christian church as it tried to make sense of itself. But somehow it got sidetracked into the mistaken idea that being a Christian meant believing the right things, at least saying you believed the right things. It's the only major world religion which is based on the primacy of belief. None of the others are, not Islam, not Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism. All of them, in different ways, are about practicing the life of faith. But early on, Christianity got stuck in the idea that it was all about saying you believed the right things. And this was largely thanks to the efforts of the Roman Emperor Constantine, who, for his entirely political reasons, wanted to impose his own power over the empire. Hence, the Council of Nicaea, which came up with the Nicene Creed, which to this day is recited word for word in churches around the world. If you know anything about the Nicene Creed, you will know this. It's all about saying you believe things about Jesus, believing things which are unbelievable about Jesus. It says nothing about what Jesus taught. It says nothing about how you might live following those teachings of Jesus. So the early church fathers tried to formulate it all into a coherent system of beliefs, separate from but consistent with the Judaism from which it had been hewn and compatible with the predominantly Gentile pagan world within which it was taking root. What could it all have meant for Jesus to have been the savior and yet to have died so ignominiously, to have been both God and man? It was a great intellectual challenge, a puzzle over which endlessly to fret. And those early Christians kept holding councils, not just at Nicaea, but for the next century or more, at which bishops from throughout the emerging Christian world would assemble to argue for weeks and weeks and weeks about the tiniest detail of doctrine. They would meet in smoky back deals, back rooms, they would do deals, they would cajole and threaten, and then finally they would hold a vote. And those on the losing side who did not immediately repent the error of their ways were then banished, imprisoned, or executed. I suggest that you here at, at San Francisco might like to introduce that into your UU congregational meetings. It would certainly liven things up, and I suspect that John, in his time as president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, might have been glad to have had such powers in some of your political arguments. Anyway, it was Tertullian in the early part of the third century who wrote a vast tome on the doctrine of the Trinity, trying to make sense of how three could be one and one could be three and each was separate, yet they were all the same. 
And though Jesus was the son of God, he was as old as God, although ordinarily a son did come after the father. Thousands of pages of this going around and around. You can see why my blood pressure used to go through the roof reading this thrilling, exciting stuff. Poor old Tertullian got himself into a terrible tangle and the more he tried to explain it, the more of a tangle he got himself into until finally, in exasperation, he throws up his hands and he declares, it is absurd. That is why I believe it. Well, I guess some things don't change much because when I look critically at some of the details of what some churches expect you to say you believe, I throw up my hands and exclaim, it's absurd. The difference is, that's why I don't believe it. But for all that some things that some people say they believe as articles of their faith might, in my entirely non-judgmental opinion, be completely unreasonable, having faith is not unreasonable. Not only is having faith, living faithfully, not unreasonable, having faith is essential because without it, all is lost. The story is told of a tribe in West Africa, the story of the Sky Maiden. It happened once that the people of this tribe noticed that their cows were not giving as much milk as usual, and they couldn't understand why this should be. They looked as healthy as ever, the pasture was as nourishing looking as ever. So one young man volunteered to stay up one night to see if anything was happening. And after several hours of waiting in the darkness, he saw something extraordinary. He saw a maiden of astonishing beauty riding down from the sky on a moonbeam, carrying a large pail. And she milked the cows one by one, filling her pail, and then she climbed back up into the sky on a moonbeam. The young man couldn't believe what he had just seen, so he lay in wait again the following night, and sure enough, the maiden appeared again to milk the cows, riding down on the moonbeam, returning to the sky on the moonbeam. On the third night, he set a trap, and when she came down again, he sprang the trap and caught her. Who are you? he demanded. So she explained that she was a sky maiden, a member of, tri of a tribe who lived in the sky and who had no food of their own. So it was her job to come down to earth at night to find food. And she pleaded with him to let her go, but he was so enchanted by her great beauty that he demanded that she marry him. Well, I will marry you, she said, but first you must let me go back to my home for three days. I promise I will return. The man agreed. She returned to the sky. Three days later, true to her promise, she returned carrying a large box. I will marry you, she said, but you, I'll make you very happy, but you must promise me never to look inside the box. 
Time passed, they were very happy. Then one day when his wife was out, the man was overcome with curiosity and he opened the box. There was nothing in it. And as soon as she returned, she intuitively knew that he had opened the box. Yes, I did open the box, he confessed, but I don't understand why you forbade me from looking inside an empty box. I can't be your wife anymore, she said. Why? What's so terrible about looking inside an empty box? I'm not leaving you because you looked inside the box, she replied. I knew that one day you would. I'm leaving you because you said it was empty. It was not empty. It was full of sky. When I went home for that last time, I filled the box with everything that was most precious to me to remind me of where I came from. The box contained the light, the air, the smells from my home in the sky. How can I live with you when everything that is most precious to me is mere emptiness to you? Being a person of faith is not about what you believe. Being a person of faith is fundamentally, how do you see the world? Is the world mere emptiness, in spite of all there is of beauty and charm, miracle, wonder, delight? Or is the world precious, in spite of all there is of pain, anguish, bitterness, ugliness and suffering. Being a person of faith is ultimately about how you see the world. We are living in times which challenge the way we see the world. We are dealing still two years on with a virus to which, in spite of the genius and inventiveness of scientists, continues to find new ways to ravage the human species. We live in a time in which people that belong to a once noble political tradition now willingly and cravenly are seeking to undermine the very foundations of democracy. We live in a time that challenges us with justifiable fear and anxiety and uncertainty. How will we see the world? When he was 53 years old, Ed Guiton, an Englishman, went on a rock climbing holiday in Bolivia. He was a very fit and active man. He'd always been active in strenuous outdoor sports. And one evening after a satisfying, tiring day of climbing, he was back in his hotel room when a combination of high altitude and low blood pressure made him do something he had never done before. He fainted. And as he fell, he hit his head on the bedpost and broke his neck. A freak, meaningless accident, and Ed Guiton now is a quadriplegic. How would you cope if such a thing happened to you? How would you cope how would you continue to see the world as precious and not empty?
The fact is that all of us, all of the time, is just one second away from the possibility that our safe, predictable, contented lives will be wrenched irredeemably from us and twisted into some unimaginable new shape. How would you cope? How would you adjust the way you see the world so that you could continue to live in it so that the world remained full of things precious to you? In an essay about his experience, Nguyen writes this, there is still immense pain and frustration, but I am heartened, if by nothing else, then by a change of direction in my dreams. There is one recurring dream in which I've got two walking sticks and I'm hobbling painfully down the road, jerking about a bit, and people are walking past and I can hear them muttering, poor old sod. And I'm saying, no, you don't realize this is me getting better. Being a person of faith ultimately is knowing that in spite of everything that might appear as evidence to the contrary, in spite of the feeling sometimes that we are strangers and pilgrims in an inhospitable land, in spite of whatever misfortune or malady or malpractice or mendacity might befall us, in spite of it all, life is good. Life is precious. It does make sense. It is worthwhile. And though we might not know what it is, there is meaning and purpose to it. Sometimes people construct elaborate theologies and observe strict rituals, write endless tomes to remind and reassure themselves of that basic article of faith. And sometimes people just feel it in their bones. There is the story of the Jews, prisoners in one of the Nazi horror camps. And one day they decided to put God on trial for allowing this terrible suffering that was all around them. One acted as the prosecutor, the other counsel for the defense, the rest, the jury. And after each side had put their case in this mock trial, the jury decided the case for the prosecution was overwhelming. There was no God, and if there was, such a God was not worthy of their worship. And just as they delivered their verdict, one of them noticed that the sun was setting. Look, he said, the sun is setting. It's the start of the Sabbath. And together, they all turned and prayed. Having faith is what enables you, in spite of everything, still to turn to your God and pray. It is the way you see the world. And coming to church is a way of being reminded that there is this way to see the world. It is to be in the company of all who have seen the world and everything in it as wondrous and holy, the ground on which we walk together and have centered their lives on that vision, a vision that sustains them through whatever might have been their fortune 
be it fair or otherwise. We stand on the cusp of another new year. In this, whatever the state in our own small private world or in the larger public world, how will you continue to look upon the world as precious and holy? What will be the sustenance and the foundation that will guide you through and sustain you through whatever this new year might hold? And will part of that be through being here in church with others in the, in the presence of that which is holy and true and eternal? And if there are people out there who look at us and say in their condescending way, poor deluded sods, we can reply, no, don't you see, this is us and we're getting better. So may it be. Amen. We live in a strange time in which the act of breathing, which is that which sustains us through life, is also that which can cause death to ourselves and to others. Never has it been more crucial that we be aware of both the life-giving effects of breathing and the potential dangers of doing so to ourselves and to others. But just as long as we have breath, may it be a cause to, to us to celebrate life. Our concluding hymn, number six. as long as I have breath, I must answer yes to life. Though with pain I made my way, still with hope I meet each day. If they ask what I did well, tell them I said yes to life. Just as long as vision lasts, I must answer yes to truth. In my dream and in my dark, always that elusive spark. If they ask what I did well, tell them I said yes to truth. Just as long as my heart beats, I must answer yes to love. Dear 
disappointment pierced me through, still I kept on loving you. If they ask what I did best, tell them I said yes to love. And now may the courage of the early morning's dawning and the strength of the eternal hills and the peace of the evening's ending and the love of all that is true and beautiful, holy and eternal be in our hearts and govern our lives this day and all, light, all, all days to come. So may it be. Amen. <laughs>